You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, good morning, NCC. It's good to be with you today. Can you believe that we are at the end of this little prophet, Habakkuk? Seems like we just started, didn't we? Today we'll conclude Habakkuk by looking at chapter 3, and then next week uh, we welcome back our lead pastor, Brandon Marshall, from his season of sabbatical. We are all really excited for that. Um, Hopefully not too excited. No, I'm just playing. Um, But it has been an honor to serve you along with our other pastors and staff during this season. We are excited uh, for Brandon to return. Uh, Also next week we celebrate Easter Sunday, the resurrection of our Lord. And so we do invite you again. Yes, even more than hurrah, right? Yes. Uh, But next week, again, we invite you to Good Friday services at 3, 5, and 7 on Good Friday that evening. And then on Easter Sunday at 9 and 10.30 as well. Well, we've learned a lot from this spicy little prophet, haven't we? We've learned quite a bit. Over the last couple of weeks, here's some things that we've learned. We've learned that God is God, and God is good no matter what. The truth that we've all been holding very tightly to. We've learned that God is always working to eradicate sin and restore hope. We've learned again, to paraphrase R.C. Sproul, that God doesn't allow bad things to happen to good people because there are no good people. Bad things only happen to a good person once in history. He voluntarily went to the cross on our behalf. It is why we celebrate this Easter week. We've learned that when we face hardship and trial, when we face suffering in this life, God has given us a gift, a gift in the form of lament to deal with issues of theodicy that we encounter. We feel that, we, we feel that acutely here in the last recent weeks, haven't we? The problem of sin in our world and wondering, God, what is going on? As we look at natural disasters in Mississippi and Arkansas and then the horrors of Nashville and everything in between, we feel Our world is broken. It's tangible. We feel the sin that ravages it. And lament is a gift from God to help us to navigate those murky waters of the already, not yet. Where we have this hope in the midst of a sinful world because of who Jesus is and what he has done. Even though we still feel the effects of the fall as we wait for his return. Thinking of the hardship that we have faced, there's a quote that comes to my mind by C.S. Lewis. He writes, pain insists on being tended to. God whispers to us in our joys, speaks to us in our difficulties, and shouts to us in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Meaning that as followers of Jesus, as lovers of God, we are more acutely leaning into and listening to the voice of God when pain grabs deeply at our core. Last week, Pastor John walked us through the five woes and showed us what it means to learn to hate our own sin and to then walk in the grace of God that we receive from him. And through all of this, this overarching theme that we have seen throughout Habakkuk 
is that we can all live by faith because God enables us to live by faith. We can trust that he will do what is just for our good and for his glory. And so today, as we begin, we're going to look at his very last words in verses 17 through 19. I'll invite you at this time, if you would, would you stand with me? And we're going to read this passage out loud. Chapter 3 of Habakkuk, verse 17 through 19. Let's read together. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. You may be seated. Now, in the first two chapters of Habakkuk, they have stressed the importance of living by faith in God through God, especially during hard times, especially in the midst of suffering. And in those chapters, Habakkuk wrestles with what we have called the problem of theodicy, learning how God intersects with the evil and suffering in this world. How does God have a hand in all of that? And many of us, when we think about the suffering in our world, many of us have been there. When things go wrong, we doubt, we question, we get angry, we experience suffering in this life. And if we focus on the problems that we face, we can end up with an incorrect view of God and an incorrect view of our circumstances. And when we have a wrong view of God, we respond to him and to those around us in a sinful manner. And so today we're going to see how does Habakkuk respond when he's been given this vision of suffering, when he has seen the judgment that is going to come, when he knows that he is going to be a recipient of it, how does he respond and what can we learn from it? So again, chapter 3, we're going to begin in verses 1 and 2. Chapter 3 takes a slight turn in style from where we have been. It's different from chapters 1 and 2 in that it reads more like the Psalms than any other part of this prophet. Like many of the Psalms, you'll see that the chapter begins with a superscription. It reads in verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. Now, Shigianoth, aside from being just a mouthful, is a Hebrew word that means being put to music or with triumphal music, or maybe my favorite definition of it is wild, passionate song with rapid changes of rhythm. I mean, that just sounds like fun, right? It's just fun. And so what this tells us, and then it's this musical bent of this chapter is solidified with that last bit that we just read in verse 19. And it was funny because we all sort of paused, like, should I read that? Is that part of it? But it's that little line in verse 19, to the choir master with stringed instruments. These opening and closing lines of chapter 3 infer to us that outside of the distribution of this prophetic word, outside of spreading this around, handing chapters 1 and 2 out, letting the people know what was going to happen, chapter 3 was set aside for something different. It was set aside with a collection of music as a song 
to be used for the people to remember truths about God. Isn't that interesting? You know, I was talking to Pastor Dave earlier this week about this, and he made this small joke, and it really stuck with me because it made a lot of sense. Verse 1 could read, a prayer of Habakkuk from the Baptist hymnal. It could read, a prayer of Habakkuk on the new Phil Wickham record. This was a song used to help convey and help the people of God to remember the truth that they had already learned. Now, as a worship pastor, I deeply resonate with this idea, right? There's a piece of me that just absolutely loves this. And as we are planning message series, I'll try oftentimes to find a couple of songs that really grab hold of the truths that we are already saying within the messages. This is why we had the song, Even If, by Mercy Me, a few weeks ago when we sang that song. And I take the lyrics of what we sing as a church very seriously, because I know that it is more likely for us to remember the chorus of a song than key points of a sermon. That's not offensive, that's just reality. That's just the way that our minds work. Music is an incredible device to help us to learn and to let truth sink in. And so if I can find music to help us reinforce the truths that we are learning, I use that. Now, the choice in the songs what we sing, in my mind, it falls underneath a shepherding context. Because if the songs that we sing are the things that we are going to remember more than anything else, I need to make sure that they are biblically sound and theologically true. It's important. The gift of song helps us to remember truth, which is why chapter 3 is set apart the way that it is. It's almost as if Habakkuk is going, guys, if you don't get anything from 1 and 2, if you completely miss the mark, hone in here. Don't forget this. And so Habakkuk begins in verse 2, addressing God. Look what he says. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Isn't it interesting how this starts? Do you remember where we began early in this book, with Habakkuk accusing God of inaction, with Habakkuk saying, God, where are you? What are you doing? Or rather, why are you doing nothing? And now Habakkuk praises God for acting. He's a a better perspective, a different understanding of what God has been doing all along. His remark about fear is not one of terror, but one of awe. He is reflecting on how he has known God to move and work, and he is in awe of that work. You remember when Habakkuk asked God, God, what are you doing? Or rather, why have you not done anything? God's response was, you would not believe the thing that I am doing if I told you. God has always been at work, and he is always at work. We just need to trust him. Another little interesting bit here is in this word that is used for wrath at the end of verse 2. It's only used seven times in the Old Testament, and the word is rogetz, a lot easier to say than shiganoth. And it means agitation. Writing on this word, commentator David Firth writes, Habakkuk is acknowledging that the revival of God's work may bring pain to those who are faithful to God and judgment to those who are not. 
So Habakkuk has moved to a space where he has accepted the truth that he is going to be agitated. That the people of God are going to be agitated and frustrated. That they are not going to like what is going on. He has moved to a space where he's accepted the fact that for spiritual renewal, for revival to take place in the people of God, they must face hardship. Now, we don't like that, do we? But the reality is, whenever we face pain and suffering in our lives, a lot of times that opens things up in our mind and in our heart to where we are more receptive to the comfort of God, to the truth of God's word. When something wrong happens in our lives, one of the first things we do is we go scouring. God, where, I need something to anchor to. Sometimes for revival and hardship, or some, some, sometimes for revival to come, hardship must also come. Let's continue as we look in the beginning of verse 3. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. Here, Habakkuk is going to describe a theophany. Now, theophany is an appearance of God to his people. This is primarily in the context of the Old Testament. This is where we see God in some kind of physical form or motion moving or working. Now, this specific theophany presents God's movement, a literal movement of God, from the south to the north. So when God's people face oppression, even oppression that is ordained by God, God does not neglect them. God does not send the judgment of the Chaldeans for the sin, for the injustice of his people, and then he just throws his people aside. That's not what he does. God is disciplining those that he loves. He's disciplining his children, not abusing them. His love for them is strong, and it's evident here in God's movement to them in this example. See, God here is going to begin at, the, at Temen, a word which literally means south. And it describes his movement from Temen and from Mount Paran. Now, Mount Paran doesn't mean a whole lot to us. But for the people of God, they would have known that this sat right next to another key mountain in their history, Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is significant because what this move of God is doing in verse 3a, this tiny little verse, is it is reminding the people of the fact that when they moved in their journey from the, in the Exodus from Mount Sinai, God is going to move with them the same way that he moved then. That though it will be agitating, though it will be frustrating, though they will experience hardship and trial, God is never not with them. He goes with them. God is coming to bring true justice to the injustice in his people and to the Chaldeans. Again, David Firth writes, Just as God, the Holy One, had powerfully been with Israel in their journey through that region in the Exodus, so now again, he similarly comes to his people. So what can we learn from this? That God is moving. He is coming to bring justice. And so we learn that true justice will only ever come from the powerful move of God for his people. What do you mean? True justice will not come with financial stability. True justice will not come when that coworker you can't stand gets what's coming to them. Some of you just thought of somebody. Easy there. 
Easy there, church. True justice won't come when your ex-husband or ex-wife holds up their end of the schedule for the kids of this week. True justice won't come with a different president in office. True justice won't come when you get noticed for fill in the blank. True justice will only ever come from a powerful, true move of God for his people. God is the one who brings justice. Said another way, nothing in our world will ever make our world right again. Nothing in our world will ever make our world right again. Only God can do that. Only God can make all things new, and one day he will. And then, as in the Psalms, we are met with this word, Selah. Isn't that interesting? The use of this word in the midst of this prophetic vision. So what is Selah? It's a moment to pause. A moment to think on, to reflect on what has just been said. A moment to deeply meditate on the word that has been received. There's also some Hebrew scholars that think that this word carries with it the tone and posture of breath. It's like you get overwhelmed and it's, you're trying to process everything and all at once you just have to go. You been there? And so here Habakkuk provides for us a moment to think on what has just been said. To think on the fact that though God's people were full of injustice and iniquity, though they were a sinful people, though they would receive judgment, God still came to them to save them. Sound familiar? A sinful people that God comes to to save? You should hear echoes of the cross all through this. And so before we continue, we're going to say a lot together. And I realize this might be a little strange, but we're just going to give it a go. And so here's what I invite you to do in this moment. Bow your head and close your eyes, just for a moment. Take a deep breath in. And then let it out slowly. In this moment, think of the truth that while you were full of injustice and iniquity, dead in your sin, the God of true justice came for you. God sent Jesus to save you. True justice for your sin could only ever come in the powerful move of God for you. Rest in that truth for just a moment quietly. Amen. And amen. It's good to think on these truths of God, isn't it? to give ourselves a moment to just pause and to think on these things. We run at such a frantic pace. 
It's often we just hear something and then it's in one ear, out the other. We've got a million places to be. Build in this rhythm of pausing, of rest, of Selah. Again, as we continue in the next few verses, I want us to shift our mind's lens a little bit because we have to pull off the American Christian eyes and put on some early context eyes for this. In these next few verses, we are going to see over and over again the history of God's people. We're going to see the narrative of where God began everything and how he has walked them through to this point. We're going to see echoes of Genesis and Exodus, and then we're going to see echoes of the conquest where Joshua is in battle and the people are moving toward the promised land. Look at verse 3. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth, was full of praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hands, and there he veiled his power. Here we have echoes of the Genesis account. Having this phrase, heavens and the earth, so close together, would have reminded the people then, as it should us now, of creation. Of the fact that everything within creation is under the total control and of God, that everything is full of his praise, that it all brings him glory, that there is no part of this world that is outside of him. Nothing in our world operates independently from the hand of God. And that should to us be a great comfort. Because what that means is that when everything seems out of control, we can know that it is not, that we have a God who holds it all together. Because our God is God. He is sovereign in complete control. And he is good no matter what. Let's continue. Verses 5 through 7 focus on God's power. And and they draw the minds of his people back to the Exodus. See if you hear it in this passage. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of cushion and affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Here, the people are reminded again of God's power in Egypt. As he causes pestilence and plague to take place, and he sustains his people through it. While no one in their right mind would have placed bets on little Israel overcoming the Egyptian empire, they hadn't counted on the fact that God, the one, that God was the one who measured out the earth that that empire was built upon. He was the one in complete control. That God was the one who would raise up one world power and bring low the next. Another interesting note here, these areas of Midian and Cushion, likely another name for Cush, are both regions in which the exodus would have taken place. These are lands that the people would have walked through as they were leaving Egypt. So what can we learn from this? We've learned that true justice only ever comes from the powerful move of God for his people. And now we learn that anything and everything that would try to stand against God and his will for his people will be found powerless. Anything and everything that will try to stand against God and his will for his people will be found powerless. There is nothing stronger than our God, nothing greater or more powerful than him. 
even at the time when they think back on the Egyptian empire, the strongest and most powerful nation at the time, they are still no match for Yahweh. They are still no match for God. And the same is true today. No matter how powerful any nation is, they are no match for God. Continue in verse 8. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah. So these rivers are not named, but many theologians have articulated that in, con- in a continuing theme that is following the people of, his, of Israel through their history, through the Exodus journey into the promised land, that these two rivers could very easily be the Nile and the Jordan. Again, we're not sure, but it very well could be. These are the rivers that would have marked the beginning and the end of the Exodus journey. And the anger and wrath that God shows toward them is not an anger and wrath toward literal bodies of water, but it is an anger and wrath toward the nations that pulled the most from them, from the nation of Egypt and other nations that had acted with injustice and oppression toward Israel. They also, the imagery of God's indignation against the sea further drives home with visuals of his control over horses and chariots back to a story of the Red Sea, where God destroys the Egyptian Pharaoh and his armies as they ride through on their chariots, seeking to oppress God's people. Again, God is showing us that he is in control of it all, that nothing that tries to stand against him, nothing that tries to oppress his people will stand. It's all powerless. Habakkuk draws our mind to God's power over all creation. He presents God as the one who acts against the oppressors of his people. God is the one coming to the rescue of his sinful, unjust people. We can't forget that that is where we began in chapter 1. God, do you not see the injustice in your people? The narrative shifted a little bit to the Chaldeans because that became the the immediate threat, the immediate thing that Habakkuk was concerned with. But this starts with, no, 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 God's people. We are the unjust ones. And still, God moves to our rescue in spite of themselves. And then again, Selah. A moment to pause and reflect on how God is all-powerful, to remember that he comes to the rescue of his people when they are in distress. And so again, this morning, if you join me, let's Selah together. I invite you to bow your head, close your eyes. Take a deep breath in. Let it out slowly. Rest in the truth that God is all-powerful over sin. That God stands against the enemy that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That God stands against the oppressor. That the schemes of hell cannot overcome him. That he is your protector. He came to your rescue through the power of the cross in the empty grave. Rest in that truth for a moment this morning.
Amen. In these next few verses, we see God as all-powerful and as victorious. Just as Israel went through the conquest to claim the land that God had promised for them, we here see God claiming victory in battle as he fights for his people. Look in the second half of verse 9. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The depth gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. Now here we have a reminder of the events that take place in Joshua chapter 10. And in Joshua 10, we see a battle between God's people and the Amorites. And in this battle, God causes the sun to stand still in the sky so that Israel might win the victory over battle. And so this here in Habakkuk 3 is a reminder of that battle. The arrows and spear that are mentioned could very well be the elements of the hailstorm that is mentioned there in Joshua 10 as well. Continue looking in verse 12. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed, and you crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. Now, there's some dispute here over, uh, among scholars over who this head of the house of the wicked is. As we look at the people of Israel and we look at their historical context, the conquest that Habakkuk seems to bring to the service at this point, we kind of go, who is this person that he's talking about? But I would argue that I don't think Habakkuk is talking about the conquest anymore. I don't think he's talking about the people going into the land of Canaan anymore. I think he's doing what he has often done throughout these chapters, and that is he brings us back to Genesis. He takes us back to the beginning. In Genesis 3, verse 15, it reads, The Lord God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God goes out for the salvation of his people, for the anointed, for those that he has chosen. And how does he do this? By crushing the head of the house of the wicked. And I would argue that this head of the house of the wicked is Lucifer. That this passage that Habakkuk presents to us is a reminder of the curse that God placed on Satan in the garden. And it's a curse that at this time of this writing, it is a reminder that this will still come to pass. God will still bring salvation to his anointed by sending Jesus, the snake crusher, to claim victory over sin and death. While at the cross, Jesus' head was bruised and he lay dead in a grave for three days, he rose victorious. That's why we celebrate next week. That's why we do any of this at all. It's because we have a risen Savior, a God who has crushed the head of the house of the wicked. Selah. A moment again to pause and reflect on this truth, that our God is victorious, that he has been victorious over Israel's enemies time and time again that he was victorious over the head of the house of the wicked, and he will reign victorious forever. And so again, if we would, let's say law together. Bow your head.
close your eyes. Take a breath. In this moment, find hope and peace in the truth that Satan is vanquished and Jesus is king. He is victorious over sin and death. And you can have eternal hope in him. Pause and think on these things. Amen. Verses 14 and 15 continue to show God's power and victory over his enemies. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trample the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. And now the tone is going to shift. Habakkuk is going to begin to place himself in this spot as one for Judah to model themselves after. Look in verse 16. He says, I hear and my body trembles. This echoes what has already been said about Midian trembling in verse 7. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me like all of creation that we have seen in previous verses, trembling, shaking, moving, bending to the authority and will of God. So here, Habakkuk says, me too. Just as all creation bows and is under his control, so am I. And then look what he says. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. See, again, while this prophecy began with a complaint about the violence and injustice within the people of God, Habakkuk knows that they will be judged, that this is coming. They will be judged by the Chaldeans with extreme violence and extreme injustice. This is going to happen. And now, even now, though Habakkuk trembles at the judgment that is coming, he can wait quietly calmly, trusting that just like God stood against the Amorites in the battle in Joshua 10, just like God drowned the Egyptian army in the Red Sea in the Exodus, and just like God set in motion the salvation of his anointed through a curse promising to crush the serpent's head, Habakkuk waits quietly because he knows though the Chaldeans come, God comes to. Though hardship and judgment will come, God is coming as well. He will not leave them alone in the midst of the trial and the suffering that they face. The oppressors of God's people from within their own nation and from outside their nation are no match for the just judgment, power, and glory of Yahweh. They're no match for him and they still aren't. Our spicy little prophet has come a long way, hasn't he? He's come a really long way. I mean, do you remember his words in chapter one? Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? God, I cry to you violence and you will not save. 
we go from this posture to what he writes now in verses 17 through 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Summarized, though everything falls apart, though nothing goes the way I thought it was going to go, though I don't have food to provide for my family, though I'm unsure of my financial stability, though I don't know what is going to come next, but I know it's going to be hard, even though all of that is going to happen. Verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Church, that this would be our heart. When we experience insecurity, trial, hardship, yet we would rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Though sorrow lasts for the night, joy comes in the morning. While there will be a time of struggle, while there will be a time of hardship, pain, and hurt, Habakkuk can rejoice, and so can we, because his hope rests as ours should in the God of his salvation. His hope rests as ours does in a God who is God and a God who is good no matter what. David first summarizes the whole of this chapter beautifully. He writes, this is a prayer for when there are no easy solutions. When ethical issues are complex. Yet it finds resolution in the fact that Yahweh is a God of justice And as such, he can be the God of Habakkuk's salvation. When God comes, he comes in power, and his power is expressed justly. This does not mean an easy resolution to the challenges Habakkuk faces. doesn't mean it's all going to go away, that it's all just going to be right suddenly. But he knows that the God who comes is the one enabling him to endure those challenges. God comes in power and justice, and knowing this gives Habakkuk the resource to live in faith, trusting God until that justice is experienced. Today we're going to have one more Selah, if you will. One more moment to remember, to reflect on what our God has done. That our God has come and that he will come again. And so today, as we say law, we're going to pause and remember why Jesus came. And we're going to do that together by remembering through the Lord's Supper, communion. And so our team is going to come. Deacons are going to get ready. And I'd like to draw our attention to Isaiah 53, verse 3. Here, another prophet, 700 years before the birth of Christ, writes of Christ's death. He writes of the suffering that Jesus would experience on the cross as he took our sin upon himself. 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, 
a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He gets it. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus was acquainted with our grief. He understood the hardships that we would face in life. He knew the sorrows and the pain. Our Savior knows us deeply. And in his sacrifice, our debt is paid. And in his resurrection, we have eternal hope. And so this morning, as we remember his death, we take communion. This is a practice that is reserved for the church, for followers of Jesus. And so if you've trusted Christ as the forgiver of your sins and the Lord of your life, then let us remember, if that is you, the severity of our sin, the wretchedness that we held within us, and the grace that we receive from a Savior who gave it all for us. If you have not yet come to acknowledge Jesus as your Savior and Lord, we ask that you would, in this moment, let the elements pass you by. No one will look at you strangely. We realize that we are all in different places in our relationship with Christ. But if I could encourage you, we are all sinners, and we are all in need of a Savior. Our sin has broken God's law, and it has left us with a debt that we could not pay. We are all destined for hell. We are all deserving of eternal separation from God, every single one of us. We are dead in our sin and unable to save ourselves. But God, who is rich in mercy and who loved us very much, took on flesh and blood and bone. He lived a sinless life and paid a debt that we owed on the cross. This is what we remember on Good Friday. But Good Friday is only good because Sunday is coming, amen? Jesus rose from the grave. He conquered sin and death and made a way for you and I to have new life in him. That's why we remember communion. And so today, if you have not made that decision, you can be forgiven and set free if you repent of your sin and acknowledge Jesus as the forgiver of your sin and the Lord of your life, come home. Jesus calls his children home. If he is calling you this morning, respond, repent, and just say, Jesus, be the forgiver of my sins and the Lord of my life, and then celebrate with the family of God as we remember this great work of Jesus for us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.